315. Page 315 in the Pew Bible. Uh, we are going on a journey today uh, because I wanted to be able to take you to Israel, even if you can't join us. I've really been praying that God will give two more people the desire to come and the means to be able to come. Uh, we're going to go January 4 through 14. Uh, but at today, we're going on a journey in southern Israel. And uh, if you take notice of the text before you, I'm going to just read uh, the first three verses, and then we're going to pause. Uh, but I want to, to be able to get, your, uh, to get you to go on the journey with me. I told you the emphasis today is on mercy, and you'll see that brought out in the text all the way back in the days of Samuel, the days of David. Now, here is God's word. Let us reverently attend to the public reading of this. As it was given to us, it was in infallible and inspired. Let us take a look. Now Samuel died, chapter 25, verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in, in Maon whose business was in Carmel. This man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. Keep your Bibles open, if you will, but let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we tackle this text today, I pray that you might give us insights. I pray that the Spirit of God might stir us. This is not just information to be passed along, but it is to be transformation, which only God can do. I pray that you will enlighten our minds, that you may equip us to be able to do, and I pray that you will inspire us to go forth. And these things I ask in Jesus' name, amen. What are you looking for? Today I want to see if you'll find mercy in man or whether you'll find justice there in southern Judah. I've been asking this question, if I was there back in Samuel during this time period, what would I have been thinking? If you were there, what would you have done? This week we've been made aware of a lot of unrest in this world. The one that really captured my attention earlier on had to be with what took place at Yale, uh, at Yale University. With the Halloween coming around, they were, there was a big concern about offending people by having costumes. And so some of the people in the university administration actually sent an email out and, uh, and, and encouraged people to be wise in, in what they dress up like. And uh, apparently there was somebody else that opined that said that, why do we have to tell people how they have to dress or how they can't dress? Because, you know, the whole freedom movement, you can do whatever you want to do. And so there was a distress that arose, and eventually there were some protesting and some things that arose because apparently two, two girls wanted to be in a white sorority, and they weren't allowed in because they weren't white. And the next thing you know, you have uh, an explosion of, of emotion, and there's a lot of activity that is going on, even to the point of the potential of, of the students across the country boycotting university. Wow. It's hard to imagine that, that everybody's bubbling up with anxiety and frustration. At Yale, the, one of the protesters was saying that they wanted to have a safe space. 
They wanted to be able to go somewhere where they didn't have to worry about somebody telling them something different than what they wanted to hear. They wanted folks to have to stay away instead of invading that zone. You know what? At first, I was upset with them. And then I found myself saying, that's what I want for my kids. I want them to go to a place where they're not having to listen to foul language. I want them to be able to live in a place where they don't have to fear of what happened in Indiana, where the girl, where the, where the pastor goes home to find his wife shot in the head by a thief. It couldn't happen in our neighborhood, could it? We want a safe zone. We want a safe space. And then those, those that were in Paris that were enjoying this, this uh, American band or they were playing, uh, enjoying some soccer, there was fear galore when they had those three people blow up their own bodies. Or they had the gunmen come in and mow down people. 129. More than 250 are injured. What are they looking for? What are we looking for? The subtitle of the message today is, Will You Find a Safe Space in Mayan? Will you find it there? Okay, as we look at the text today, I want you to know that in trying to unfold this to make sense of it all, uh, there are... Three particular people that are mentioned, and I want to be able to go through real quickly and show you, number one, uh, that we're going to look at the characters of the story. Secondly, we're going to look at their challenges, and thirdly, we're going to look at their choices. The characters are presented to us in verses one through three, so if you have your Bibles open, you want to follow along. We are introduced to three people, to David, to Nabal, and to Abigail. Now... You know about David, right? David is a good guy. You know, um, he's supposed to be a good guy. At this point in time, he is still pretty young. How do I know this? Because I know that as I've been teaching the class on Tuesdays, uh, we've been going through the monarchs. Uh, David got to rule for 40 years, but he's not a king yet. So right now, he's still younger. He's still getting in preparation. He's awaiting his day when he finally gets to have the realization when Samuel came to his house when he was probably 15 or 16, and he, and he anointed him with oil and said, you're going to be the next king. So David, right after that time, ends up standing up to this little guy named Goliath, right? The nine-foot giant. I mean, this is the David that we know about. He loves God. And he goes up against that giant, and he's not afraid with his little tiny slingshot. He says, I come to you in the name of the Lord. That's the kind of character we're talking about. Now, up to this point, David has grown a little bit older. He's got 600 people that are following him. 600 mighty men. Now, that's actually a, a cool group. But that's a, that has its own dilemmas. The dynamics of a group of 600 people. Uh, I just want you to know, just look at our congregation. If we have about 200 here, is that all so easy? You know, when God blesses us, when we have 300 or when we have 400, what's it going to look like? You know, you might have to walk a little further from your parking space. You know, all those kind of things come into play. Now, that's David's life. He has just gone from, now if you have the map up there, let me try to show you where we are. Uh, David has been spending some time in En Gedi. And, and in Gedi, that's over by the Dead Sea. Uh, so if you look around here, you can see that there's En Gedi, and it's right by the Dead Sea here. And when David was in, at En Gedi, in the previous chapter, chapter 24, he has just taken his sharp knife and he cut off a part of the cloak of, of Saul. Does that make any difference to you? 
you know, he didn't like the clothes that he was wearing, right? So he just cut a piece off. No, we all know that that's not the story at all. The story is, is that Saul is hunting David. Saul's got some problems. Saul's got an attitude. And Saul is doing everything he can to get rid of his nemesis, David. Because he heard that song, David, or Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. So really, whether or not it actually happened or not, the people all loved David more than they loved Saul. And the best way that he could handle it, Saul was saying, I'm going to get rid of David. So he goes down to En Gedi and he spends some time at this beautiful little area right there. And David sneaks in, cuts a piece off. And after he cuts it off, he, he, he feels terrible. And that's where you get this passage that said, don't lay your hand against the Lord's anointed. David is so sad about it. He, he realizes that this isn't a good example. But he, he stands up to Saul from a distance and, and they somehow yell across and they said, Saul, if you look at your clothes, you're going to see you got a piece missing. And he says, I could have killed you, but we didn't. And at the end of chapter 24, they make a deal. Saul finally goes home and says, this David guy may not be so bad. So from that moment, whew, take a breath. Now, David has been with his 600 men going through all of this wilderness area. Now, this wilderness area is not flowing with milk and honey. It is not an oasis. It's not easy living out there. If you want to look rough and and rugged, you will definitely be able to get that look by living out there. So David has just done this thing. and He hears the news. I believe he hears the news about Samuel dying. Was Samuel his friend? Yeah. He had a lot of respect for Samuel. But Samuel was up in Ramah, and Ramah is just north up here because Jerusalem's this way, and then Ramah's up there. So David didn't get to go to that. David is still down here. He just left En Gedi, and he heads over to the wilderness of Moa, or Maon, which is leaving from here and crossing in through here, and he's in this area. You can see where Carmel is, and there's a little town right here. It's a rural town called Maon. Now, Maon is, is not even on the map. It's so tiny. Now, we know it's a rural type setting because if you look at who lived there, we only know one person that really lived there, and his name was Nabal. Okay, he's the second character that we're going to look at. We have David, then we have Nabal. Nabal is introduced to us in verse 1 and 2 as somebody who was really poor, right? He was really rich. And the way that he was rich described his, his flocks were pretty big. They had lots of sheep. They had lots of these animals around. And so if you could look at his life, if you picture Nabal, Nabal has the American dream. He's got a place to live. He's got a pretty wife. He's got riches. What else does Nabal need? How many of you want to be Nabal? Careful. You haven't read the rest of the story. But think about it. It appeals to us. We all kind of want to say, wouldn't it be nice if we were the rich man? Wouldn't it be nice if we had excess? Wouldn't it be nice that we could celebrate the feast and have plenty and an abundance? Wouldn't it be nice? Now, there's a third character that we're introduced in this parable, uh, in this, in this storyline at Maon. And this th- third one was a lady. We often don't get to hear about the ladies. But there is one lady there. And if you look at the text, what does it tell us? There's two characteristics about her. At the end of verse 3, the woman was discerning and beautiful. Wow. And then that's put in stark contrast to her husband. The man was harsh and badly behaved. Boy, don't you feel sorry for Abigail? Not a marriage made in heaven. 
But Abigail had everything she would want too. I mean, she wasn't lacking. She had the latest designs, no doubt. I'm telling you, that is the first part that we are introduced by the author of 1 Samuel. We, they want us to know there's three characters. Now, secondly, I want to look at the challenges. In verses uh, 4 through 17, you're going to find that there were some situations that were unfolding which make the plot thicken. So if you want to look at David's situation, as I told you, David already has not had an easy time of it. Ever since that, that Goliath fell, you would think that people all would love David, but they weren't all sure. Because David was a fugitive. He was almost a refugee. He had no place to call home. You know, he, we all know about Bethlehem, the, the town of David. But at this point in time, this is not a safe place. So David is on the go with the 600 mighty men. And he's through the wilderness. And guess what happens when, when guys are traveling through the wilderness? They get hungry. They're looking for some order. They have to find a camp, a place to stay. Now, if, they, if somebody tells on them and they send a messenger back to King Saul, what do you expect King Saul to do? To chase him down. So he has to find these places where he can stay somewhat uh, clandestine. So he's out there in the wilderness area, and, if, and you realize it, that David is just, he's dealing with 600 people who are hungry, and they settle down in this particular little area, and they end up coexisting with the people there, with Nabal's people. Nabal's people were taking care of the, the, uh, the animals that were grazing. And David's mighty men, they hung around there and they caused no interference. They had peace. Now, that's part of the challenge is that David is hungry. His people are hungry. The second thing you have is this challenge, the situation uh, that Nabal has. Nabal is wanting to maintain control of what he already has. He's hanging on to the stuff that he's, he's worked hard to get. And so he's faced with a new situation when he understands that somebody wants some of his stuff, some of his food. What does Nabal have to do? He, he's challenged to say, do I let them in a little bit? Oh, no, they might live around here permanently. I don't know if I want those kind of people living near me. Nabal is going through all of these kind of thoughts. He has this large household that's doing great. And basically he says, leave me alone. Don't bother me. I don't know if any of you relate to that. Maybe you do. Then there's this third person and the challenge she has, Abigail. She's looking for something else. David was looking for mercy in man. Nabal was looking for justice in Judah. Abigail was looking for something else. She was married to a man of folly. She even tells us about that in a few moments. She, she, she was married to a guy who didn't see through things. He was only out for himself. And obviously, if you look at the text, she was trusted by the servants there. They all recognized that she was truly discerning, that she had a head on her shoulders and that she could figure things out. But it is obvious also that she didn't get to make many of the decisions. She was in a kind of a helpless state. And so if you look at the passage there, I'll be looking at verses 4 on. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name, and thus you shall greet him. Peace to you, and peace to your house, and peace be to all that you have. Verse 7, I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us. We We did them no harm, and they missed nothing at all while they were in Carmel. 
Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes. For we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's men, young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited. You see how the story unfolds? What's going to happen next? You know, in a, in a great world, if they were coming to our church and somebody came and they said, can we have some food for our family? We're, we're in need. We'd like to live at peace with you. What would you do? Hey, some of you are quick to say, we'll give them food. Some of you are quick to say, go to the soup lunch on Thursday. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're wrestling through this whole thing. Are we really merciful or not? I fear that too many of us resemble Nabal. When David's men came, they said all this to Nabal. Verse 10, Nabal answers David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my uh, shearers and give it to the men who come that I don't know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all. And David said to his men, Every man strap on your sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, verse 14, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day. All the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this that, and, and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Story is interesting, isn't it? Now, those of you that were wanting to identify with Nabal, are you wanting to still identify with Nabal? Now, I wanted to be able to, to show you that this is the challenges that they faced. But now I want to come down to the choices. What are you going to do? What did they do? The choices, if you look at first, you can find that David actually did ask for help. He went to Nabal and he did it very politely. He said, he said we need some help. He says, this is who we are. This is what we've done. You can see that we're not freeloaders. We're we're not just fly-by-night people. We're real people. And he says, and I'm David. Now, does this make make any difference to anybody that that it's David? Now, the Bible tells us that that we are introduced as Tenable. If you have your Bibles there and look at the verse, there was one verse, one word I skipped over. And uh, if you look at it there at the end of verse, uh, at the end of verse 3, It says that this man was a harsh and badly behaved, for he was a Calebite. Now, do you know what a Calebite is? Okay, there's two interpretations, and both of them fit, so I'll give you both. The first one, if you're a Calebite, that might mean you're a descendant of Caleb. Okay, now, Caleb was a good guy because he was one with Joshua and Caleb. They were the ones that left Kadesh Barnea, which was way down there, if you remember, uh, back when the 12 spies were sent out with Moses. And they, those two guys came back with a report of faith. They said, God will give it to us. So because of that faith, 
Joshua and Caleb were allowed to come into the promised land. And Caleb was probably the oldest guy that crossed the Jordan when he came through and laid stones on, the, on, the, on that pile right when they came to Gilgal last week. Caleb was the oldest guy. And when Caleb got his inheritance, guess where he wanted to be? He wanted to be in the certain mountain areas where the, the Amalekites, no, it's, it's the Anakin, Anakins. Uh, it's where the, the giants of the land dwelt. Caleb wanted to take over where the big people were. He was not afraid of giants. So if this guy was a descendant of Caleb, and he's looking at David, who is known as the one who took down Goliath, for him to say, who is this guy, is really mockery to the next degree. Now, the other interpretation for a Calebite is that he is a friend of the king, which kind of makes sense. If he was a friend of King Saul, then when you hear about David, you can understand why Nabal is not going to buddy up with this new guy who's, who's in line to be the next king. Either way, you can find that the troubles are there. This is, this is a recipe for conflict. And so when you look at these choices, I'm telling you, first of all, David had to make a choice whether he was going to ask for help or not, and he does. And then you have the next person who has an opportunity for a choice is Nabal. To have mercy or not to have mercy? What does he choose? Not to have mercy. So the next thing happens is that information goes back to David, and David gets to make another choice. And David says, do I go for justice now? And what does, da- what does David and his men decide to do? Justice. Strap on your sword. These guys deserve to die. And so 400 of them strap on their sword and they're getting ready to come in and just to wipe out Nabal and all of his people. Now, the next thing comes into place. Is this where it ends? This is where we we get to hear about this third person, this Abigail lady, who ends up making a choice. And some of you might condemn her for her choice because she overrides her husband's choice. She doesn't do what Ephesians 6 tells us to do, which is wives submit to your husbands and to the Lord, those kind of things. You know, the word obey that nobody likes to have in their vows anymore. Well, she chooses not to obey her husband, and she gives an interesting explanation. If you look there at verse 14 and following, you're going to be able to see, but, but they came and told Abigail, and they explained to her everything. And so verse 18 now is where she responds. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs. Are any of you hungry yet? She laid them, verse 19, on, uh, um, she said to her young man, go before me, behold, I will come after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down towards her, and she met them. Verse 21, now David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all these, all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. For God for God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belongs to him. Do you hear the justice? How many of you are proud of David? How many of you want to identify with his pursuit of justice? There are moments when we want it. But when you see it so crystal clear, sometimes it doesn't seem so appealing. 
So Abigail makes the choice, and this is her conduct, and let's the scripture tell you. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so he is." which means folly. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving you with your own hand, now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal is. And now, let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and in the care of the Lord your God. And the, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done by my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause or grief of, or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. I'm looking at the choice of this lady to do what was right. She wasn't pursuing mercy. She wasn't pursuing justice, but she is the ambassador of grace. And I want to just show you there's three things she did. The three actions, and you can see them in your text. In verse 18, she made haste and she got down, or she got the food together. Number two, she says, I'm going to come visit him. Go before me. I'm going to be right behind you. And third, she got down and humbled herself. Wow. I want you to be able to see the gospel in Abigail. Because in Abigail's speech, she mentioned six things. And these are the six things that we should all recognize when we are coming to Christ. Number one. She looks around and she sees the spirit of the age. She sees her husband and said, he's a fool. When you become a Christian, you look around and you realize people that don't know God, they are foolish. Secondly, she, she says, David, you love God. You don't need to be guilty of, of doing things that are excessive. Don't fall into traps. She's looking at, you know, it's be like us looking at Christ and saying, you don't have to go after us. Number three, she gives him everything she has. Symbolically, she puts all that gift in front, but she is willing to give everything because you can see she gives up her stuff, her pride, and her comfort. She got down on her face. Fourthly, she asked for forgiveness. When we come to our Lord, we need to ask forgiveness for the sins in our lives. What, what sins did Abigail commit? She was on the wrong team. In some ways, she didn't stand up sooner against her husband. Fifthly, she recognizes God's calling for him to be the prince. She says, oh yeah, most people may not realize it, but I know. I know that you're going to be the one crowned. And it's like us looking at Jesus while he's on the cross. Does he look like the king of kings and lord of lords? 
No, but we know he's going to be. No other name is given among men whereby he can be, we can be saved. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And Abigail is already mimicking for us what it's like when she looked at David as we look to Jesus. And then her sixth thing, she says, remember me when you come into your glory. Now, I've rephrased that a little bit. Have you heard that before? That was the same words that the guy who became a Christian when he was on the cross, on one of the crosses next to Jesus on, Go- on Golgotha. And he sees the Christ and he recognizes him. God has given him the eyes of faith to behold the Savior. And he says, Jesus, remember me when, you, when you're in paradise. Abigail says, David, when you become king, remember me. Wow. I wanted you to see that. You can see... An application, when you look at Nabal and you see his expressions, can you see yourself? Do you, is, are you longing to be like Nabal and to have the rich, to have the comfort, to be able to say, leave me alone? Or secondly, do you see Jesus in David's weak example? David was wanting to bring justice. David was just coming in mercy You can see how David is not known even though he has done great things. But he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. They told him, who is David and who is Jesse? It's exactly what Isaiah 53 parallels. Who is that Jesus dude? He was despised and rejected of men. You can see a glimpse of Christ in David himself. But brothers and sisters, do you see the gospel of grace? And Abigail, she is able to see the plight of her condition. She's desperate. She's going to die. Everything that she's thought she's holding dear to is basically gone, even though she still possesses it. She sees the handwriting on the wall. Do you see the same? Secondly, she's willing to give up everything that she has. Is there something in your life that you're trying to hang on to that you can't let go of? She gives up her pride. She gives up her comfort. Is there something that you are just saying, I can't let go of this? Abigail did, and she asked for forgiveness. That's what we all ought to be very, very practiced in. We ask for forgiveness. She desired to be connected with the new kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. She looked at David and his kingdom. We looked to Jesus and his. And what's fascinating, I didn't read the rest of the story. But you know what happens to Abigail? She's brought into the kingdom. She's not only remembered, but after Nabal dies, he has a stroke or something like that. Ten days later, he's gone. And David ends up sending an emissary back and saying, Abigail, I would love for you to be not only in my house, but I'd like you to be my wife. And he takes her in, and she has a place in the palace. Do you see the parallel? That we are the ones who are outside, and we can't fix our situation. But when we humble ourselves, even as, this, as it says there on the, on the banner, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal, the land, heal I will forgive, and I will restore. And he took Abigail into the kingdom. Likewise, Jesus will do that with us. Does that make sense? Does that give you energy? 
So I wrap up with asking you about the safe space. Are you really wanting to find a place where nobody will ever say anything against you? Where nobody will ever be critical or critique you? Where nobody will have a different world and life view than you have? Is that what you're really looking for? Come on, you're supposed to say yes. Okay, I'm setting you up. You want heaven. Okay, because when we get to glory, what a day of rejoicing that will be. All sin will be left behind. It is going to be a place of bliss. No more tears will ever be shed. I don't even know if we'll have tear ducts. I'm trying to tell you that heaven is that wonderful, safe place. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. And if you find yourself in Moen, then I'd rather you follow Abigail's example. I'd rather you have the eyes of faith. And I really want to encourage you that the safe place to be is on Jesus' side. Whether that is, as, as, as Joshua was told, I'm not on that side, I'm not that side. Jesus says, I am the commander of the Lord of hosts. You need to be on my side. Oh, Lord Jesus, there are a lot of us here that really do relate to Nabal. There are a lot of us here who think that the American dream is to have it all and to have people leave us alone. That our 